Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hi, welcome to the show today. Our guest is the sales guy, Jim Keenan, mostly known as Keenan, author, speaker, consultant, uh, aspiring <laughs> aspiring conglomerate, who he'll tell you a little bit about. And uh, you can find him online at asalesguy.com. Keenan, welcome to the show. Thanks, brother. Thank you very much. I am happy to be here. Great. So rather than have me spew out some standard PR release about who you are and what you did, I just want you to tell the audience what you do and who you do it for. Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, self-grandizement. Oh, my gosh. I'm not good at that. Uh, what do we do? So sales guy, we have two divisions, sales guy recruiting and a sales guy consulting. And the simple method is we try to help sales organizations grow revenue, either by finding kick-ass, badass people and or by um, helping them restructure the sales organization via structure, strategy, people, and process. Got so it. there's your, your quick off-the-cuff Perfect. So how did you get your start in sales and, and why why sales? Oh, my goodness. Sales in general? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's like a lifelong story. So the bottom line is I just learned how to sell as a kid to get out of trouble. So when someone would well, – I, I did a lot of stupid shit. And so uh, someone would get mad at me and I started to realize they weren't mad at what I did necessarily but the long-term consequences or the disrespect for other people. And so I became very in tune with other people's motives very, very in tune to other people's motives. And so I was quickly able to take those motives or those objections and overcome the objections. And so that's when I started to realize I was a good salesperson. And then I was an entrepreneur by nature. I was the kid in the neighborhood who I did the lemonade stand and the haunted house and the this and that and sold stuff to, for, the, for the school raffles. I was always winning that stuff. So people just like, oh, this guy can sell. So when I got out of school, everybody was running around offering me, you know, hey, I got a friend who has a job. You got to go talk to him. And it just kind of fell into it. Well, what was that first job out of school? Uh, I was I was a sales rep for the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. I was actually in a little known fact. Almost nobody knows. You'll get a chuckle out of this. For years, I modeled uh, around the country. And I was in South Beach, Miami for the season modeling. And a friend said, look, I got a job for you. You got to come home. And I did the back of the napkin math. And I was like, I'll make more money in the long haul if I go get a job. I'll make more money now in the short haul. But I was like, screw it, I'll go the long haul. I went long and came back and took the job. And, so, uh, so if I dig online, I'm going to find photos of you as a male model? You might. 
You might. I have never actually done digging for that. I did runways, runway really? for Tommy Hilfiger. Met the guy several times. I did, remember Eastern Mountain Sports? Yeah. Sporting yeah. Goods store. I yeah. did their stuff all the time. I was all over their stuff and their stores. I did, oh gosh. Oh God, now I have to remember. Back in the day, I had a Made in F here. I did that stuff for them and Joslin's. And I just did all kinds wow. of stuff back in the day. God, never, never got to the GQ level. But yeah, I did all kinds of stuff. I never knew that. Well, I'm fascinated to hear that about you. So you were selling for what were you selling for the Metro Denver Chamber of Commerce? Memberships. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, memberships. And uh, first year, beat almost every record they had. I was their top rep and one, I was there one year and crushed it. Beat people been there three or four years. Everything I did known or believed about selling fell right into place. Just hustle, understand their buying motives. I mean, all this stuff was innate to me from all those years of getting myself out of trouble. So I just went in and killed it. And the other guys were just sort of complacent sitting around? Yeah. No, they worked hard. No, no. Actually, they worked hard. There were some good ones. I didn't, you know, there were months. There was this one girl, Cassie. She was tough. I mean, I had to work hard to beat her. Uh, another dude, oh, this is a Jeff. You know, he used to be the top dog. I had, you know, everyone's wanted to beat him, but I just figured it out. And I think at the end of it, I just, you know, just beat them all. Just, and, just yeah. And did you have that aspiration to go into sales management or were you content just to be selling? Uh, no, I had aspirations to go into sales management because I had aspirations to move up the ladder. I wanted more responsibility. I was always a leader as a kid. I went to camp and by the end of the camp, I'd be the guy who had like, you know, was the so-called, you know, interim camp counselor who'd work with the camp counselors. You know what I'm saying? I was just always sort of a leader. Right. So I always wanted more, I always wanted more responsibility always. And so where'd you go from the chamber of commerce? I went to a company called born information services it was an IT consulting firm. And, uh, it's a funny story. I'll make it quick, but I had worked at the chamber for a year and I actually sold them their membership and there were multiple level membership levels. And I sold them one of the more expensive ones and, and said, by the way, what do you guys do? And they said, we IT consulting. And this is a 99 right before 2000. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. Technology is becoming pretty ubiquitous. I mean, this email thing's kicking off. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good place to be. So I, uh, I said, I want to work for you. And they said, dude, you, you don't know anything. You've been selling for a year. You don't know anything about technology. You don't know anything. And I was like, nope, I don't. But I can sell. And uh, there, they, he, the guy sort of brought in the, the branch manager because they were opening an office in Denver. And, and uh, he said, I understand you want to work for us, but I understand you have no experience. And I said, yeah. And he said, look, you seem like a bright guy. He said, what I need to do is I need to find someone with experience. I need to find someone who can hit the ground running and get the office up and going. And then once we get going, I'd love to talk to you. And I looked him right in the eye. His name was Mike Sexy. I looked him right in the eye and I said, <laughs> I know, isn't that funny? I looked him right in the eye and I said, Mike, I completely understand what you're saying. I have one question. He said, what's that? I said, have you found that person yet? He said, no, I haven't. I said, so therefore... Every day that goes by, you don't find that person. I could have been working, coming up to speed. I said, eventually you will cross a crescendo where you will have lost time if you don't find him. So the question you have to ask yourself is, will you find him fast enough that I couldn't be up to speed and be successful, and therefore you're on the losing end of this decision? And I go, I challenge you to do that. And he said, he kind of chuckled at me. He goes, okay, I appreciate it. Two weeks later, he calls me up and he says, you son of a bitch. All I've been thinking about you is looking me in the eye and saying, I challenge you. And he goes, let's talk. They hired me a month later. I was the third employee in that office. I was a partner within three years or two and a half years. I was their number one rep in the, out of the branch office. Um, and, just, and then I became sales manager within three years and ran the team here. Yeah, just kept going and going. Well, that brings up a question I was going to ask later as we talked about your recruiting business and so on. But you know, if you're a sales rep, and you're selling yourself to an employer, 
Yeah, how do you how do you sell those intangibles like you did? What's the what's the key? What's the lesson, the takeaway for our sales reps listening to this, looking perhaps at the next job, next opportunity? How do you how do you package those intangibles like you did? Great question. I get I, this is one of my biggest passions when it comes to sales, and that's hiring salespeople, and more importantly, salespeople learning to freaking sell themselves. You do exactly what you do when you're selling the product, right? When I was talking to Mike, unbeknownst to myself, it was intuitive, but what I quickly realized what his challenge was. He's opening an office. He needs to get up and going quickly. He hasn't found the person that can do that yet. He's looking for experience, but if he doesn't find that experience quick enough, he's going to lose sales here. So that's, that's all business problems, right? Mm-hmm. Just like just like any other type of business problem, if you're selling a sales acceleration tool, or if you're selling a, a HR system, or if you're selling a finance system, those are the business problems. So I quickly inserted myself as a solution to his business problem and said, okay, I get it. I actually stated it back to him at the time. I don't realize, I don't think I realized what I was doing, but I said, okay, here's your problem. You need to hire someone quickly. You don't have that person yet. If you don't get that person fast enough, you lost time that I could have been working. Are you willing to take that risk? That's just citing back his business problem, right? Mm -hmm. So I got the guy thinking about it and I've treated it exactly, not kind of like, not similar to, not almost like, treat it exactly like a sales call and you're sitting across from that interviewer and you ask them every question you could possibly imagine about that sales organization, why they're not making their sales goals, what some of the salespeople are doing successfully, where he, what they're doing poorly, what they'd like to see the sales team do differently, why they don't think they're penetrating accounts, why they, where they think they can improve in the territory management, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you get all those holes, all you talk about is how you and your selling approach and your sales methodology and the things you've done in the past fix those holes. Oh, you said your team struggles at territory management and, and getting into accounts, but they don't know who you are. Well, let me tell you, one of my things I'm best at is selling the intangible and connecting with people who don't understand. How do I do that? I leverage education. I educate people before I start selling the people, blah, 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 blah. Now I'm filling your holes. You can't help but hire me. So, okay. So let's look at the flip side of it then. So why is it so hard for business owners and business managers, CEOs and VPs of sales to make good hiring decisions? They don't trust it. Well, for, oh, two, two reasons. First, most people don't sell that way. Most people get across from you and they, first up, they play the game. They tell you what they think you want to hear. I've watched people sell on the recruiting side. I don't spend too much time in it, but my crew do. But every once in a while, I interview people and I watch them sell themselves out of a job because they start telling you what they think you want to hear. They start, <clears throat> they focus too much on this checklist of stuff. And if you don't have the, the perfect checklist, you get bounced out. So salespeople, one, it's hard for sales managers because salespeople don't know how to sell themselves. The second one is sales managers and sales leaders, they're chicken shit. They're afraid to hire people who don't have this certain checklist, 10 years experience, this, SaaS experience. One of my favorite ones, and to all your listeners and sales managers, listen up. If it doesn't matter if someone has sold SaaS or not, SaaS is, is no different than any other sale. It's a freaking platform. So let it go, right? They got to let it go. And they got to trust, right? They, they want the checklist because they want the tangible stuff. And then finally, it's because when they try to get the intangible stuff, they don't know how to, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't know how to apply for it. They, I mean, uh, look for it. They don't know mm-hmm. how to test for it. They don't know how to ask questions for it. Well, and that's the and key, so right? They, yep, yep. So Good how, example. I think it's, oh, sorry, go. Well, I was going to say, how, how does, I mean, I'm a firm believer of actually testing you know, salespeople and the knowledge they need to have or the skills they claim they have. 
and yet so it seems like managers have such they think it's such a radical idea i mean i, I had a client that was trying to hire a director of sales that was going to be both a manager and a, a bag carrier and need to be self-sufficient doing presentations so we brought the candidates in that we you know screened the resumes and brought candidates in that we thought were going to fit the job and put them in a room with a laptop and a brochure and said put together a three point you know three slide powerpoint presentation on this product and we'll come back mm-hmm. in 10 minutes and pitch it to us and only five out of the 20 we brought in stayed around to do it. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay, there you go. So this is people, salespeople themselves not being committed to the process and not knowing how to do it. Yeah, somehow thinking I love is, that is, is, yeah, I thought it was beneath them or whatever. Good. Well, that's filtering because if it's beneath them, you can't count on them to, um, to be good salespeople. What else won't they, won't they do when they get the job? So how do, you, how do you help companies verify and validate you know, claims that salespeople make while they're selling themselves? To them, yeah. You know, one of the problems I see oftentimes with with uh, hiring managers is they sort of fall in love with the candidates before they do the reference checks. The reference checks just become pro forma at that point. So, from the recruiting side of the house, we don't help cu- our customers or clients to do that. It doesn't really fit, um, and a lot of times they don't want to. They don't believe they have a problem. They they think they've got it right. You know, we've there's been times we've had to have conversations with our clients saying, "You just let a fantastic person go." Well, you know, they seem good. They seem pretty good, but you know, we just we just felt that they just have enough SaaS experience. I'm like, are you kidding? Are we really talking about this? So, I can't help those people. But when it comes to my clients on the consulting side, we build a methodology for the hiring process. And one of the things we do, which we do actually do on the recruiting side, is we force our clients to build what we call critical success factors. Tell us what is critical to getting this job done. And almost inevitably, they come back with some really high level stuff, like you know. Um, uh, good critical thinking skills, SaaS experience. Like, no, 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 no. Get in the job. Get into it. Get into it up to your elbows and knees. I mean, up to your elbows and shoulders. And what do they have to do? And then we start getting to some really good critical success factors. So I'm making one up. The person has to be fantastic prospector, and they have to generate large amounts of top of the funnel. Okay, mm-hmm. that is something. That's a critical success factor. We can measure against that. Another one could be they have to be very detail-oriented because they have to draft their own proposals and they have to be convincing via um, uh, written words, the written word. Right? Yes, they be convincing the written words so they can't be as oratory because proposals are critical. We have to respond to RFPs even though we hate them. That's just the nature of our world. Okay, great. So you get two, three, four, five of those critical success factors, and that's what we spend 80 to 90% of the time focusing on. We can get to the other stuff, right? But if they don't have those three or four things, we know they're going to fail. Right. And then then we build evaluation processes to to uh, to assess those. And it just depends on what they are. One as an example, one thing I love Mark Robert talked about in his book, the sales acceleration formula is one of the things they found that was critical to success was uh, being coachable. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in his interview process, uh, he had them do a demo on the fly, then would tell them what he liked about him, tell them what he didn't like about him, coach them and ask them to do it again. And he would assess how well they took in the knowledge, what he says, absorb the knowledge, and then how well they applied the knowledge. And he could determine how coachable they were simply from that. So that was a methodology designed to find and assess a particular skill set or critical success factor. And we do the same thing here. And test it, which is so important. Test it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, and this is, I don't know, Doug, get your, your opinion on it. I mean, my belief and what I've practiced over the years is that if somebody has a, a claim that they make either or verbally or on their resume, they need to be able to validate it and verify it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's your job to be able to come up with ways to do that. Yeah. All right. So I've got two hypothetical scenarios I'll run by you. 
don't have anything to do with okay. hiring. Well, maybe ten, tangentially has something to do with hiring. So, but I'm asking everybody these questions. So, first one is you're a CEO or a sales manager with a company that's got a brand new, very innovative product. And perhaps you're creating a new category, new market niche with it. What are the two things that you, most important things you need to do to like build critical momentum in the marketplace for an innovative product? I mean, how do you sell innovation? So I'm a huge fan of teaching. So the, in the market was the thing I'm zeroing in on. The first thing you have to do in the market is almost everything you put out has to educate and teach and not about your product per se. Mm-hmm. It can be one of every five pieces you put out, but you have to educate on the problem. You have to educate on the impact of the problem. You have to educate on why the problem wasn't solved. You have to educate on what happens when the, pro- the, the problem is solved. You have to educate on the impact of the change going from where it was today to where it is tomorrow. You have to educate on everything you can. You have to be constantly t- teaching people who come to you, get in touch with you, or surround themselves with you. It, it's all about education and teaching. And you gotta build a sales team that is able to educate and teach. Right. So if you mm-hmm. get someone, they're mavericks. I got to give the man credit. Um, oh, I'm spacing. It'll come to me in a second. Both sides of the table. Mark Suster. He wrote. A, he's not a sales guy. And I'm jealous because I wish I had written this. He wrote his four types of salespeople and he called them superstars, mavericks, journeymen and get rid of them or the fire them. Mm-hmm. And basically it was an axis of uh, those who do really well with structure and direction. Those who do really well, you know, uh, they're very natural salespeople. They, uh, they don't need a lot of direction. Sometimes they actually fight it, but they can sell the intangible. And then the superstar who can do both, you need mavericks. Those people who can sell the intangible, who can spin a vision and a story that gets people connected, who can educate them along the path that don't need necessarily to follow a step-by-step, right? You need those type of people. Excellent. Love the answer. Okay, stay with us. We're going to go on a short break. Let's come back. Jim Keenan, sales guy. Going to share with us some of his tips for quickly amping up your sales, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Welcome back. My guest today, Jim Keenan. You can find Jim online at asalesguy.com. All right, so I've got another hypothetical scenario for you. You're a new manager hired into a team that's been stagnant sales-wise, you're under pressure, you know, maybe it's a SaaS company and they've got that metric, you know, if you don't make a difference within 30 days, you're out. What two things would you do in the first week that could have the biggest impact? Get to know the team, get to know the team. So I, if I only had two weeks, the first thing I would say to somebody is don't ever take, if you know going in that they're going in the wrong direction, don't ever take a job with the expectation is they'll turn it, you'll turn it around in 30 days. Mm-hmm. You, you, need to, you need to get buy-in on the front end that if they're going in the wrong direction, there is no panacea. And if they think hiring you is the panacea, you're not going to be the scapegoat. So you got to negotiate more time. But using your hypothetical, uh, I think the most important thing you can do in the first two weeks is get to know the team. I mean, embed yourself in the team. Who are the players? Who are the influencers? Who are the, the strugglers? Who's not going to fit? Who is going to fit? 
Uh, who can you rely on? Who can you not rely on? What are their skills? What are their strengths and weaknesses? How do they interact with one another? How do they collaborate together? And that's your core sales team. And then look at the surrounding team. Who's running marketing? Who's running product or product marketing? Um, who influences them? Who is supporting sales? Who is a, a detractor from sales? And basically know all the players involved as much as you possibly can. Okay. I like it. So what is the single biggest challenge that salespeople have today? I'm going to say them. So if you had asked me this question four or five years ago, I would say competition in the, in the market. You know, we're, we're still coming out of a, a slow economic time and, and people weren't loosening up their purse strings. So your value propositions had to be substantially higher and you had to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But today people are spending money. We're seeing growth. You have all of the tools in the world to support you in that effort. You've got social selling as an additional tool of value proposition or, or approach a strategy to help you. So I think it's people, salespeople themselves. I still don't believe the average salesperson can sell to save their life. I encounter salespeople every day from a recruiting perspective or trying to sell me on stuff. And their absolutely lack of ability to find out what the true business problems are, their lack of understanding of business principles, business acumen, the processes and the approaches at which their product or service affects. I mean, that's the big one to me. If you sell something, nine out of 10 times, that product or service affects my current way of doing things. And so if you can anticipate, or better yet, you're educated and schooled on how we go about our business in the areas of your, our business processes and our business methodologies in the area of which you sell and market, you should be asking, those, asking me those questions. Hey, Jim, how do you currently do X today? Would you mind sharing me the challenges of trying to deliver Y or whatever the case may be mm -hmm. and get all that out of me and then say, oh, look, we can make that process easy. We can make that methodology that we can simplify that approach and get me engaged. But they don't. They don't. They just want to start talking about their product. They move really fast. They I had a guy call me up the other day and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, uh, getting you lists. I don't even think he knows. I was like, why would I spend five minutes you're talking about lists? Why do I need a list? Why would I need a list? Why would I need your list? I don't use lists. I was like, uh, no. And I hung up because, okay, thanks. I thought to myself, yeah, you're your biggest problem. Right. So salespeople are their biggest problem. So what role does, I mean, I, when I think about you, you know, I think about attitude, right? I mean, Thank your attitude you. is Thank great, you. right? So you've got the, whole, you know, the badass thing and, and you, you live it. You are this, this person that you portray. So, and obviously it's had a role in your success. So what role does attitude play in sales success and how, how can people develop a more fearless attitude that gives them the confidence to ask some of these questions and, and act the way they need to act? Ooh. <laughs> this, my young brother, is a deep, deep question. Look, I don't know why people don't have the right attitude. I, I don't know why people don't commit to themselves. That's what I'm going to tell you right now. So everybody listening, you may not like this, but you don't commit. You're not committed to your job. You're not committed to much of, any, to, to your, much of anything. I'm not going to go so far as your family because I know you feel that way. I'm not going to dig that hole on myself. But you're not committed. <laughs> Let me tell you how. And I'm actually going to post this graphic uh, today or tomorrow on Twitter. The world is an interesting place when it comes to commitment and getting stuff done and growing, right? If you look at when people do things, the, there's, there's a curve, a bell curve, if you will, right? Where when you do something, when you commit to something, whether it's playing soccer, whether it's uh, learning to be a salesperson, whether it's your, you know, your job, 
whether it's skiing, whether it's whatever. When we start something for the very first time, the return on investment is awesome, isn't it? When you learn something for the first time, if you put in two hours, you can start to understand it pretty quickly, can't you? Mm -hmm. you? You get better pretty fast, right? Right. And then if you put in a couple of days, you get better even faster. So what happens is when we learn things, we get involved in things, we don't have to work too hard to get return and get better. But somewhere along the line, that switches. And all of a sudden, you start going on the downslope. You have to put in more and more and more and more time to get better. And most people don't cross that hurdle. They do just enough to be okay. I call the people, the first people who get in and, and, and start doing something and quit right away, I call them quitters. The people that get in after, don't quit and just kind of play in it and keep working as long as they get a positive return for their hours, one hour of work, I get a lot of return. I call them dabblers. But when you get to the top of that bell curve and all of a sudden you have to work harder and put in more effort to get little return, they're your hobbyists. And then as you go down that even more and you have to put like 10, like, the amount of time a professional athlete has to put in to get better is weeks, months, if not years, to see a little bit of improvement. They're your professionals, and then below them, they're your superstars. Almost mm -hmm. nobody plays in the professional superstar. Few people play in the hobbyist. Almost everybody's a dabbler. Why they're a dabbler, I can't tell you. I, I, I don't know, but they just can't commit. The minute it gets hard, the minute they have to actually go the extra mile and actually have to sacrifice, they don't do it. I ask salespeople all the time, What's the last sales book you read? Oh, I haven't read one in a long time. Well, then how the frick do you call yourself a good salesperson? What is the deliberate learning you've committed to over the last six months, year, two years, 10 years, 12 years of your career to get better? And if it's nothing, I don't know why. I don't know why people think that they don't have to get better. Yeah, I just posted an article about what are you going to sacrifice to get better, right? As if you just talk about one hour of TV, a week, right? Stop watching The Bachelorette and or The Bachelor or whatever your guilty pleasure is and read yep. a sales book. Something that helps yep. one hour a day. That's all you need. One hour a day. I don't know why, Andy. If I had if I knew why, I'd be the new Anthony Robbins. I couldn't tell you why, but it irks me. And I think it's one of the things I think it's lack of self awareness and I think it's lack of accountability. People don't like holding themselves accountability. They're full of shit. I'm telling everybody listening right now, nine out of 10 of you are full of shit. You're not as good as you think you are. You're not committed to getting as far as you want to get. And you're convincing yourself you are. Actually, I wrote a post just the other day. You'd love it if you want to check it out. It talks about what real hard work is. And there's what I call the convincer zone. Mm -hmm. And basically, the idea is hard work, as we define it, isn't what most people define it. Because hard work is measured on two axioms. It's measured on actually the complexity, the pain, the difficulty, the, uh, the, the difficulty, right? It's hard. But there's also another access, and that's do I like it? And there's a lot of things that are quote-unquote complex, or, uh, uh, onerous, difficult, hard, painful, gruesome that we like to do. So that's really not hard work, right? Right. And then there's a lot of work we don't like to do that's not very hard. It's easy. It's quick. Like filling in Salesforce, for instance. That's not, I mean, we don't like, it's not hard work, but we don't like it. So it feels like hard work, but we do it and we say, look, I'm working hard. I'm filling up my Salesforce, but that's not hard work. True hard work. So when we're doing those two things, when it's either we like it and it's hard work or we don't like it and it's easy, we're convincing ourselves we're working hard. That's the convincer zone. What real hard work is, is when I don't freaking like it and it's freaking hard. Will I do that work? And... To your point made earlier, is, you know, the marginal return you're getting on it is small 
But that could be the difference between winning and losing. Holla, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, Absolutely. I, I wrote about that. You know, it's 1% makes the difference. You know, there's a great Tour de France, as we're recording this, the Tour de France is on. And there's an article I read about professional bike riders, the Sky Team, that's one of the prominent teams in the Tour de France. And they do everything in terms of how they fix the bikes, the position of the riders on the bikes, how they, you know, their tactics in the race, you know, the diet, everything is designed for what they call the aggregation of the 1% marginal gain. They're just mm -hmm. looking for 1% difference. And they know if they get that 1%, all that hard work for 1% improvement, that's nothing to sneer at. That's the difference between winning and losing. Holla. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Most people don't want to do it, though. They're content. I think that's it. I think they're content and they're happy. And so they just accept it. Yeah. And I think also they, they're sort of protecting what they have, right? And I think business mm -hmm. owners, a big lesson for business owners, salespeople have had some successes. Once you start trying to put yourself in a position of just protecting what you have, then you start going downhill. Yes, no question. There's no standing still. No. All right, we're going to wrap up here with uh, some rapid-fire questions. You can stream of consciousness. You can give one-word answers, or you can elaborate. So what's the most powerful sales tool in your arsenal? Uh, I'm going to go with Bomb Bomb right now. I'm a big fan of Bomb Bomb. My team uses it. I don't use it as often because I'm don't have. i not selling as often, but I'm going to go with Bomb Bomb. Okay, that's video email tool, right? Yes, okay. video email tool. So who's your sales role model? I guess Richard Branson is someone I admire and I like to follow. Mm -hmm. uh, MLK, because not only did he build the vision, he did it nonviolently. And I always think, boy, talking about a sales job, you got, a, you got millions of really pissed off, oppressed, be, physically beaten down people. And he got them, to, got them to march into hell's kitchen and not raise a fist. I just want you to think about that sales job for a second. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yes, MLK from that perspective. Um, and that's a great point because, you, you know, salespeople tend to forget that sales is equal part, you know, inspiration, leadership, you know, as well as knowledge and all the other things that you know. But in, being able to inspire somebody to take a journey with you is fundamental mm -hmm. to selling. So all the stuff you just said is sales acts, sales tactics. True sales, in its essence, in its simplest form, is influencing change. Mm -hmm. That's it. The, how, all the stuff you described is how you do that, right? But sales in itself is influencing change. I agree. And the best salespeople can influence change of any type. Get my kid to eat their broccoli, get this man or woman to marry me, get my boss to, to get a new office, get, the, get someone to give me the promotion, get someone to hire me when I don't have any credentials whatsoever, right? That's all influence. <laughs> <laughs> I love that example. So what's the one book every salesperson should read? Execution. Who wrote it? But that's Larry Bossidy and Ram Charon. Okay. The reason I like that book so much is really not a sales book per se, but it's about execution. And what, what I really like about it is it, it, it literally, it's the most influential book in my life because it changed how I looked at the world. It forced me to start asking questions about how to get it done. So, when you start looking at the world through the eyes of how do I get it done, someone comes to you and says, I need this sold next week. And in the past, I would be like, I can sell that and I'll run out and do it. After reading that book, I was like, well, wait a minute. How am I going to do that? Who do I need to talk to? What calls do I make? What markets do I need to go into? What, what uh, happens if this doesn't happen? What, I mean, it was what, 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 what? And it changed everything. And most people aren't good at that execution part. What's your favorite music to listen to to psych yourself up for a sales call? <laughs> uh, Hip-hop. 
and or hip hop slash rap and or every once in a while there's a heavy metal band that creeps in that really gets my attention. I like Linkin Park. My big one today is um, uh, Five Finger Death Punch is one of my favorite bands right now. Oh, pretty heavy metal. Yeah, I don't know them. Okay. Five Finger It's pretty heavy, but it snuck in. They got a great song called Wrong Side of Heaven. And so, yes, yeah, so to get me pumped, I listen to some pretty heavy stuff on the rap side or the heavy metal side. Not necessarily meant for kids, but it works for me. That's why right. I ski to, too. Yeah, I don't think we have many kids listening to this. So, What's your, what's your definition of value in sales? Uh, my definition of value. Um, that's an interesting question. How do you define value? My definition of value is what the customer or client says is valuable. So I dig there. I, I try to find out how they measure value, and that's what I shoot for. Because if I think it's valuable, it doesn't matter. What do you do to keep fit and healthy? <laughs> G-E-N-E-S. I've been blessed with genes. Thank mom. In 47, I still have almost the exact same body I had when I was in high school, right down to the abs, and I don't work out. You do ski, though. I do ski, but I've skied so long and so well that uh, it, it's efficient. Like, I don't burn any calories. I mean, I'm sure I do, but it, I ski so efficiently, it's not a, a cardio workout. Gosh, maybe we all be blessed with your genes. So, yes, when, thanks, the one, Mom. The, the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople. Uh, how do you get someone re-engaged? I think is one of the most popular. So they go dark. How mm -hmm. do you get people go dark to come back into the scene? That's probably the one I get the most. What's your answer? Uh, it's a two-fold answer. So the tactical answer is uh, you gotta you gotta basically go back and, and hold them accountable for what they said. So if they said, "Oh, I'll get back to you in a week," or they said whatever they said, you have to hold them accountable. So I'm confused. You said you talked to me in a week, or I'm confused. You said, and you put it back on them to hold them accountable. And that's not 100%, but it gets you. It's amazing how people react when, you, when they realize that they're being jerks, right? Because, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, um, and then the other one, because it, it's going dark. Not people you can never got in touch with. But when someone goes dark, you had some interaction with them. And right. they said they were interested. They said something, right? They set some expectation. So I help people. I say, look, you got to craft an email that holds them accountable. You list what they said they would do. You list the timelines they said they would do it. You say you're confused because it's not getting done. And then you challenge them with why not and what can you do different? And how do we close the loop or whatever? And that usually gets them back on the line. It doesn't always sell it, but it gets you reengaged. The other part I tell them though is you're, I teach them that you're in this situation because of all the stuff you didn't do up to it. So <clears throat> if you didn't understand what their value proposition was, so you were selling ether and they finally got bored of, of your stuff or you didn't um, take control of the sales process. And when they said, okay, great, let's talk in a week, you didn't try to schedule it right then, or you didn't uh, uh, attach the sales process to a, uh, a deliverable or a business challenge that is important enough or valuable enough to keep them engaged. So usually it's a whole series of sales issues or problems that culminated in not getting back with you and going dark. Not actually them, it was all you up to that point. And I teach them how to keep that from happening again. Perfect, good answer. Good one word answer too. So last, yeah, we're, <laughs> <laughs> so last question, what do you do each and every day to get better, either at work or in life? I read. I read a lot. I read a lot. I read a lot. And now I'm actually watching a lot more videos. I've been producing more videos, so I find myself watching more videos. Um, and the other thing I do, and this is probably a good way to end, I deliberately learn. And I've written about this constantly on my blog. Deliberate learning says, what don't I know? And what do I want to know tomorrow? And if you can build a mentality about deliberate learning, the sky is the limit. Most people don't deliberate learn. They learn mm -hmm. reactive. They watch, oh, hey, look, I just learned that. Or, oh, hey, that was neat. 
They don't sit down and say, oh, shit, what don't I know? And what do I want to know tomorrow? And best yet, what will be most productive for me to learn today? If I knew this today, how much better would I be? Okay, great. I'm going to go learn that. That's amazing what curiosity so, does for you. Yeah, deliberate learning. Yep, deliberate learning. So curiosity should drive the deliberate learning, but be deliberate in your learning. Don't be open to learning. That's everybody, oh, be open to learning. No, fuck that. Be deliberate. <laughs> know exactly what you're going to learn and why it's important and why you want to learn it and go learn it. Check it off and then go learn something else. Perfect. I love it. So that's been Jim Keenan. He's been our guest today. Jim Keenan, a sales guy. So Keenan, tell people where they can find you. Uh, you, you did a good job. A salesguy.com, uh, uh, Keenan on Twitter, uh, Keenan on LinkedIn. And that's K-E-E-N-A-N. Yes. And you just, if you just Google Jim Keenan, you'll find me everywhere. So God forbid, I better not break any crimes. Because, I mean, yeah, break any laws because they will find me in an instant. <laughs> New York Minute. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't break any laws on this show, so we're good. Thanks, brother. Thanks, brother. So we're going to sign off. Remember, people, if you're an entrepreneur, you're in sales. And if you're in sales, you are an entrepreneur. And as Jim said, you need to make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you amp up your business. So until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.